here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hook segment. We're doing something different again. What we've done is we've invited somebody onto the show whose work we critiqued in a previous episode and we wanted to see how she's revised her work, how she's revised her query letter and what kind of results she's had in the process. So Julie, it's an absolute joy to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being brave enough to join us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast now for a few months. And I have to say, it's just been, I feel like so helpful to my writing process. And I'm just so appreciative um, for you guys doing this for the writing community. 
Absolutely. Our absolute pleasure. Right. So what we're going to do is we'll begin with, we'll ask Julie to read her revised query letter. If you've been a constant listener to the podcast, you will have heard us critique her work before. Now we're going to listen to the revised query letter, which we will then discuss, after which we'll go to the revised opening pages and uh, we'll give Julie feedback on that as well. So why don't you take it away, Julie? Here's the revised letter. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I have found your podcast incredibly helpful in refining my querying process. I went from no nibbles at all to one full request after listening to your podcast to having three full manuscript requests outstanding after revising my query and pages to incorporate your comments from your review of my letter and pages on the podcast. Additionally, I follow all of you on social media and you set such a strong professional example for the writing community leading with style, grace, and humility. You're all bionic women, even if Carly is the only actual bionic one out of the trio. I am seeking representation from my upmarket novel, The Bittersweet spot complete at 98,000 words. Plus size Latina protagonist Ali Cruz questions her muted identity years after her transition from attorney to stay-at-home mom, but a surprising temptation threatens to derail her metamorphosis. Fans of I Don't Know How She Does It and The Overdue Life of Amy Byler will appreciate Callie's quirky, honest, and at times sad attempt to reconcile motherhood and selfhood. Callie struggles to care for her children, including her recently diagnosed type 1 diabetic son, while grieving the loss of her immigrant father. Feeling isolated with her husband perpetually traveling for business, she leans on her pediatrician and priest for support. Her pediatrician recognizes Callie's offbeat humor as a cry for help and gradually becomes her unexpected mentor slash confidant. However, her relationship with her priest quickly becomes flirtatious. Callie convinces herself it's a harmless guilty pleasure, but she soon discovers a startling secret that makes it harder to justify her behavior. After heartfelt advice from her pediatrician, Callie realizes her feelings for her priest might actually be a misguided attempt to fill the emotional void left by her father's absence. She focuses on regaining her confidence long buried under the weight of motherhood and confronts her own gentrification in the wake of her father's death. But when her husband takes a job out of state and her priest ends up at her door, Callie must choose her path, pursue her unconventional attraction, save her marriage, or make a different choice entirely. The bittersweet spot provides a lighter look at perseverance in the face of pandemonium and offers an inspiring view of marriage and motherhood beyond martyrdom. I use my experiences as the daughter of a Salvadorian immigrant and the mother to a type 1 diabetic child to add authenticity to Callie's voice. I was published in the archive Duke's Literary Magazine and the Duke Journal of Comparative and International Law, and more recently have written multiple essays featured on Scary Mommy. Thank you for considering my query. Again, best regards, Julie Caledonio. Awesome. Thank you so much, Julie, for sharing this and being so brave to come back on the show and, and kind of be here. We love the fact that we can now ask you questions and kind of pick at all the things that we weren't sure about before. When we are just the three of us, sometimes we speculate a lot and a lot of the podcast is us just kind of spinning our wheels. So um, so this is so great. And again, we're, we're so glad to have you here. So I feel like the essence is all is still there, right? Like, I don't think we're, we're seeing any really dramatic 
changes. When you listen to the the episode with your material on it, what for you was like the big takeaway in terms of what you wanted to make sure that you you changed in terms of like, what do you think that we poked at that, that made a connection? So one thing that I tried to do is to really draw out, um, I think that you guys seemed confused about the relationship between the priest and the pediatrician and how that was going to play long-term into the narrative of the book. So I tried to flesh that out so that we're taking it through kind of the dynamic of these relationships and what they're going to mean um, to her on this journey that she's kind of going through. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of what I tried to do to anchor the story better. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I keep coming back to with this, and again, this is why it's so great that we have you here, is like a lot of times with women's fiction, there's like one, and it's, it's not that these are necessarily antagonists, but like two, there's usually like one figure that's kind of like, is this the one that's going to, you know, be the thing that ends it all? And you have like two men in, in her life that are kind of able to upend it. And obviously, and then you have like the third thing, which is the diabetes with the son and the health issues. So I think what I still feel like I'm, I'm, I feel like emotionally I'm being pulled in three directions and I kind of just want to know, and I want to be guided by you a little bit more in terms of like where my emotions should be and how I should feel. Like, I think I'm just so confused about like how I should feel. It's not that it's not interesting. It's just, I'm trying to figure out emotionally, like where I, where you're trying to lead me as the reader. And that's what I keep coming back to. So maybe to speak, can you speak a little bit to why you have both the priest and the pediatrician as like two quote unquote antagonist characters? So yeah, so I think that what I'm trying to do and the dynamic is actually like the trio. So the husband also plays a role, Richard, very muted here because that's kind of how it's carried through throughout the novel. And I think the dynamic I'm going for is the different variations and the levels of intimacy that you could have, whether it be physical, emotional, I feel like that's kind of the the friendship aspect. So we have Mm -hmm. these kind of layered relationships that I feel like unfold. And I feel like some of it is exactly what she's experiencing. So kind of that level of what are these differences is exactly kind of how she's working through this. But the way that I came through with this, which I removed from the letter, uh, was the reference to Anne with an E. So Anne of Green Gables, which Avonlea and Anne of Green Gables and, and Anne with an E, which was like that revisionist Netflix version of it. I don't know if you saw, but so that's kind of where I started to anchor the story, which was that dynamic between, you know, somebody who's a little bit quirky. And then in, in I don't know if you've ever heard of Avonlea, but um, it's um, or Anne of Green Gables, but it's Gilbert Blythe and he's a doctor. So that's actually where I became with this, you know, this idea of this relationship and this dynamic and the snarky banter, etc. So that's the relationship really that kind of unfolds with Callie Cruz and the doctor, which becomes more of like a unconventional kind of friendship. And mm-hmm. then the awkward dynamic is, I think some of it is, is that she's not in a good place and she's reaching out yeah. for support in the wrong, the wrong places. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just making some notes as we're talking. So one of the things I think that was coming out to me was the intimacy thing, right? It's like as as a stay-at-home mom, you're very lonely at times, right? Like (laughs) I've never been a stay-at-home mom, but I have friends and I know, you know, I'm a mom, I get it. Like it's a very lonely experience when it's just like you and your kids and you're like, when are the adults going to show up? And so I, I love that kind of playing off of that, like how to find how a stay-at-home mom would potentially try to find intimacy through other adult connections. And I, so I think that's a great theme and a very relatable theme. And as I said, the loneliness. So I think that is great. And I, I always say in my, in my queer critiques that I don't, 
don't like to talk about themes <laughs> and, and query letters, but I might be breaking my own rule because I almost think like that is at the crux of this character's journey is is exploring that the loneliness and the intimacy and that drive for adult connection um, while battling all of those themes of motherhood. The other thing I think you need to focus on and what comes up time and time again with the calls that I have with editors, editors are always looking for unlikely friendship stories. So if you can pitch this as more of like an unlikely friendship story or have that like as you know mention that somewhere like an unlikely friendship editors love unlikely friendships and readers do too because it's like it's a nice way to you know keep the reader on their toes in an unconventional way so I love that so I would say lean into the unlikely friendship or unconventional friendship stuff I think that's great and then I think what I ultimately am still confused about and I don't know see this is why I'm glad you're here because I don't know whether I want you to spell it out in the query is like does she botch this all and and like I don't know I kind of want you to spoil the ending I know Cece is not a spoiler person Um, I know that's that's actually right because there is a whole level of dynamic to this um, mm-hmm. that becomes very much more complicated. I could spoil it for you, is, you know, which is that the priest is actually married, mm-hmm. which is okay. a, a loophole that's very unknown to a lot of people. He but- became Catholic after marriage. Yeah, so he's in a like, oh my God, like priest daddy. So that's the layer. <laughs> no, you have, you have to mention this. You have to yeah. mention this. This is know. cool. Um, this is cool. You have yeah. to mention so this. This is a layer of complexity. So once she finds that out, that really changes the dynamic of, mm-hmm. is this in her head? Is it not in her head? Um, and ultimately how that kind of proceeds. I was teasing Bianca because, you know, I've read her books and her priest, um, you know, because I remember when you read the query too, you were concerned about the element of priest and it is difficult. Um, I try to make him have layers of, you know, whatever and endearing and, um, and his own level of, you know, he's not like Bianca's priest, have his own level of what he's going through in the levels of complexity of his own thing. But yeah, so the Episcopalian loophole, um, which is very unknown. It actually happened at my church, but they're like eight years old. But anyway, so that's how actually that was the element of this idea mm-hmm. of that. But um, did you is this to- the startling secret you, uh, you mentioned? But soon she discovers, is that the secret? Oh, yeah. that's good stuff. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Like yeah. That. And so can I ask another question about the journey about her like sexuality and intimacy, like sexual intimacy? Because obviously like her husband's away a lot and eventually he takes a job out of state. And is there an exploration? Like I'm just trying to figure out like what the like the women's fiction hook is here, you know, in terms of like personal growth. Is there like does this attraction ultimately explore like sexual themes or like where what what levels are we kind of covering with these relationships? I think it's the opposite. So she has a very then. strong physical relationship with her husband which is very typical because in these situations, a lot of times um, that's the absence, right? There's an absence of physical intimacy um, that goes along when you're drifting emotionally. But Callie, you know, I mean, this is a theme throughout the novel where they still have a very strong physical relationship. Is that enough? Um, to carry them through? Is this a level of duty, obligation? Is this kind of how you've been taught to make sure marriage is good? It's okay if you drift, if you don't have conversations, as long as, you know, you have that, which is basically, you know, and that's kind of the ending of the novel of, of whether or not that is enough, whether or not with the priest, whether, you know, she she jumps on that or, you know, the, the friendship aspect with the pediatrician and, but ultimately it's her relying on herself is where I have it ending. Okay. My next question is about the son. 
Mm-hmm. So the the kind of one of the hooks here is the the health issues and the health challenges. And obviously, you know, we haven't got to the pages yet, but you know, that that's a an opening hook there. How serious does the health matter become throughout the book? So it's fairly relevant. I think that what brings her to this kind of I think managing that, which exacerbates isolation because it's so hands-on. And I know it's like a taboo thing, like the caretaking angle, etc. But At the same time, it really does deminimize the fact that this is the reality of a lot of women that you have to, and it really affects a lot of things. Like for instance, for me right now, I had to pull my kids from school. I can't increase my hours at work now. My son has an autoimmune disease. I can't send him to school in the middle of this pandemic. So I think there's variations and different levels of stories. You know, there are people who are type one and then, you know, but taking care of or having to oversee it initially is something that's very overwhelming for her. And then I think that driven with the loss of the father is kind of what sets her off on this emotionally or this, you know, her own journey. And he, the pediatrician, which is the other angle is, is a type one diabetic. Um, So that's actually the, which is not in these scenes because he does not tell her right away, which is kind of his character. Um, So that actually is what is the cement of the unlikely friendship that he kind of helps her to like push past, like this is manageable. You can do this. I've done this and really kind of helps her with that. And so this might be my last question and then I can pass it off to somebody else. For me, again, this is like a taste thing, right? So I'm like putting on my like Carly hat. So this, all of this is awesome, but it still is skewing a teeny bit quiet to me. And that's why I'm trying to figure out like, what is the dramatic moment? And so if we were like when I'm at a writer's conference and I'm doing like 10 minute pitch sessions, like this is the type of thing that I ask usually. So I'm really trying to figure out, I guess, what the climax is. Like, I just still feel like maybe I don't know what it is. Like, what is that dramatic moment that we're building towards? I think it really is um, the moment with the priest uh, on Father's Day when he shows up at her house. And then the moment with the husband where she's kind of at that. I do think originally when I wrote this, I wrote this more in the style of like the, I don't know how she does it. um, And which I think you said you read, which is a very, like, I remember reading that book and thinking like, where is the climax? Where is this journey? Where is it? And so when I originally wrote this book, I wrote it more in, and it was in the journal style, like completely journal style. It was much more, but I've had to refocus it, put it much more in the narrative form because obviously that's more of maybe the style now or you know more of the the critique I was getting so but I wanted it to be more of like a stream of consciousness kind of like in the mind of somebody as these events are unfolding and I remember reading that book and thinking like where is this you know huge like momentous occasion you know so I kind of tried to do it subtly where she has these small moments of aha for herself Um, professionally and personally and pushing past this. But the ultimate, you know, I think really big moment would be, you know, what she does in that moment with the priest and how that kind of carries the, the end of the narrative forward and how she kind of learns to stand up for herself as herself. Okay, one last question. Sorry. Like, has anybody cried reading this? Like, would do you have any beta no. readers that said they cried? Okay, put that in the query letter. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's wow. a saying in publishing called you cry, you buy. But yeah. um, Carly, a question there. So in the same way that you say you don't want writers to tell you that they're funny or that their story is funny, do you want Julie to write in the query letter that this book is a tearjerker or or do you want her to say it's made beta readers cry? Like, how would you want her it's to made, work It's made beta readers cry. <laughs> yeah. What you're all witnessing now is Carly trying to pull at the threads of what would be the commercial hook in the story, right? Oh, like I, this love is, I love yeah, it. I love it. Yeah, I'm it's cool. It 
I will listen to this podcast and replay like, it. Like unlikely friendship, the cry you buy. Like this is great. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to hear the perspective of, you know, one of the things I regret about this whole process is I wrote this book last summer during the pandemic and I queried too quickly and I didn't know the process. That's why this podcast, you know, and I push it on so many people is so amazing. Um, even the criticism and the critique I paid for is nothing then. And, and that's my biggest regret because you can't go back. Like I can't go back and requery the agents that never even responded because it, the letter wasn't good or the pages weren't there. And once you can refine everything, and now I, I'm going to query, I'm going to start my second novel, querying that one, um, which was the sequel to this, but I've added it to be a standalone because some of what you're talking about, Carly, is addressed in that, in that it's really just the relationship between her and the pediatrician and how that evolves. And that might be a simpler narrative, but it has the same tone and the same voice. And maybe I'll be, I read something you wrote on Twitter about, you have to remember, it might not be your first book. It might be your second. So I can't get caught up in that. Now I know the process. I know what I'm doing. And I think that, you know, I'm, I still love this book and I think it's amazing. And I feel like, it, you know, and I've gotten great feedback, but at the same time, you can't tread water. So I'm just going to keep going and take all your advice, work on this, work on the next one. And kind of even, so that's when you said that about the unlikely friendship, you know, cause I feel like that's also the hook that, you know, really carries through my second one, which is obviously has much more of a, you know, I don't know, like an Abby Jimenez rom-com kind of vibe. Can I just ask Carly and Cece, is that true that she absolutely can't go back and query agents who never even replied to her the first time? Can can she not try? Because I mean, if they if they didn't even respond to her, it's not I, like they've rejected her. The the thing is, the the book would have to be substantially revised. Um, you are allowed to go back if it's if it's almost like a different book. Otherwise. <laughs> The 2,000 query letters we get every month would be like, I don't know, 20,000. There's the rules. We got to understand the rules. And in order yeah. to break the rules, you have to understand the rules, right? So I'm not saying never. Like, you know, if it, if it's revised dramatically, you can even say in your query letter that, you know, I pitched this before, but, I, you know, I've made a lot of changes. If you don't want to give up, then don't give up. Yeah. Why I'm asking is because you said you initially wrote it in like diary entry form. Is that the one that you queried agents with that it was all like diary entries and well, because if so that's really different yeah, yeah. because that's why i'm yeah. asking i mean it's substantially different because i wrote the first draft very quickly maybe four or five weeks naively i query so i feel like this year has been a very big learning process right because you come back you edit you're incorporating you're seeing the suggestions being made and the, i mean it works you get you know what i think i'm understanding now the process and even though I loved that kind of format and those are the books that I was heading towards like a Bridget Jones kind of, that was what I wanted to do. That isn't maybe what is going to sell now. It's now substantially different. So yeah. to my yeah. mind, you should be able I to. I think it would be okay. Go I back think and it would be okay. I would query the strongest one, whichever yeah. one of your novels is, is the strongest but, one with the strongest hook and strongest writing. That's the one I would do because it's, if it's substantially different, it's there. Yeah. And people ask this question a lot. Like I'm, I'm excited about my new book. Like what do I do about my old book? If it's still out on submission. And I always say, if you're still like, go with your passion, right? Like if somebody's going to call you tomorrow and be like, we're going to publish this book. And you just be like, I don't know which book, right? Like you just got to keep moving forward. I love that you're so focused on the forward momentum. It's like awesome. So refreshing. We love that. So, um, so if you feel like you want to continue that forward momentum and you've learned a lot and you want to grow and, and put that in the drawer, that's totally fine, but you don't have to give up on the first book. Nobody says you have to, but follow your passion, follow your heart. If you feel like you've outgrown that first book and, and you're ready to 
kind of take off with the second, then go with the second. Cece, do you want to dive into your notes on the query later and then we can go to the opening I'll, page? I'll do it really quick. So I almost wonder whether you should mention what the secret is because of how strong a hook. I'm, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I'm just something to think about. That's one note. Second note, I think you should remove or heavily edit the sentence. Callie realizes her feelings for her priest might actually be a misguided attempt to fill the emotional void left by her father's absence. It feels more like a resolution. It feels more like, I, I totally understand why it's like really important for her character's emotional arc, but it's taking up space in the query letter. And it's it's almost like, oh, but don't worry, guys, she realizes this. And so there's growth that feels like it's closing something. And I don't want things to be closed. I want things to remain open and fizzling and sparking. And then I also have a question. And please note that this is not a bad thing. And it's also not a good thing. It is genuinely me being curious. Have you noticed how every single human in this woman's life that affects her is a male? Like father, husband, father by, by, by which I mean like her father who has passed away. Uh, father, husband, priest, pediatrician, even her son. Is this intentional? I have a question. Is this so intentional? somewhat is, it, it is intentional, right? The holy trio, the father. You I know, was going to ask like father, yeah. son, holy ghost. It's it's, yeah. it's there, so right? Like the symbolism. And the transference aspect of it, which is she's transferring the emotion to these other men in the absence mm-hmm. of, of the man. So some of that is intentional. Uh, in the sequel, obviously, the, the character that is the mother um, takes a big priority, which is now standalone. So I'm not calling it a sequel anymore. But in, in that novel, and it really builds on the relationship with her sisters. But part of this aspect of it is, is to kind of demonstrate that aspect of isolation that she's feeling mentally, even if it's sometimes, and this is a very important theme, I feel like speaking to women all the time, there are other women there. She is just you know, there's an element of not wanting to talk about things with people that you feel might be overly critical of you. There's an element of, is this a safe space? Do you have to keep the image of looking like the Joneses up in front of other people? And there's an aspect of she's still in denial that this is the reality that she went from the successful attorney to this stay-at-home mother that she feels like she conversing with these other stay-at-home mothers kind of just puts her in that spot, right? Now I've lost it. I really am that's my identity is just a person who does car line. And, you know, so she's trying to pretend that that's not the new world, but it is. Once we get to your pages, I'll, I'll have two and they might be totally like batshit crazy suggestions. Just saying. But in terms of the query letter, these are my notes. My only thing would be, you don't want to tell us the resolution and you want to give us a sense of interconnectedness between the plot. And I just want to say that I don't get that sense in the query letter, but then I'll give you a note once we get to the pages that I might address this if it resonates with you. Awesome. Okay. So why don't we then move on to the actual pages? Julie, for our listeners, will you just give them a rundown of what those opening pages contain and just a bit of an explanation of, of what you changed or what you tweaked based on the previous feedback? The prior pages began with Callie Cruz at home, in bed, um, with her children, which I had done based off of the critique of somebody who I paid and that Carly thought, and I agreed with her, that it was very cliche. And so, and as a reader, I had seen it again in a, I think, a Camilla Pagan book. So anyway, so I, I changed it. Um, still beginning with the children, but we have her in her ride or die minivan flying down the road because her five-year-old son, Ernie, has unquenchable thirst. Uh, she couldn't get into the pediatrician's office because they're closed for lunch. Uh, she heads there anyway, knowing that her pediatrician will take her. And she's somewhat upset with him because she had kind of already done some internet Googling and thought maybe that her son was type one. And he had assured her after checking the blood glucose, he was okay. Um, but now he's thirsty. She's she's trying to get there. We meet the pediatrician. 
who she's trying to awkwardly befriend. And even in the poignancy of the moment, she can't help kind of poking a little bit about being Canadian and he can't, uh, and he pokes her a little bit about thinking her JD is an MD. She finds that her suspicions were correct. Her son does have the type one and she has to kind of absorb this news in this moment with her pediatrician there for awkward support. That's the pages. Awesome. Right. Uh, Cece, why don't you dive into your notes on that first? I definitely think it's better to start with her in the car as opposed to waking up. I still wonder if we're starting in the right place just because I wanted there to be an energy of tension. And I don't quite see that here other than like I definitely see her angst and her concern for her son. And of course, but but I meant tension, I think, with a clear antagonist. And I think that when you have something that uh, that's as emotional as a child being sick, it's hard to feel curious about that in a, oh, I want to turn the pages kind of way without being kind of creepy, if that makes sense at all. I can go through through line notes, but since we're, we might be running out of time, let me just give you my big picture note. What if, what if you had like a sister-in-law character or some other woman? And again, this might possibly is totally my bias here with her in like the hospital, like something more dramatic, something more, a a situation that has more of a pressure cooker vibe going. And you have someone there who like, she does not get along with like at all. Um, And I'm saying a sister-in-law, but it could be anyone, right? But I guess a sister-in-law helps because it's typically like someone in the family who you, you didn't choose, you didn't choose to marry this person. You married her brother or, or, or whatever. It felt like it would add a much needed layer of, because I do agree with Carly, like it's still skewing on quiet. And I totally appreciate that there are books where you go, where's the climax? And I don't know how she does it is a very good example of this. There are others too. It's still hard to to make it though with with these books, right? Like it's just because there are exceptions out there doesn't mean that we should aim to be the exception. So I'm wondering whether we could do that. Another thing I'm wondering about is what if we made either the priest introduce it to the pediatrician or vice versa? Like I just want there to be more- that happens. <laughs> It is. Oh, so she doesn't know the priest then when we start the book. Yeah, no, the the pediatrician actually recommends his church because she's having more Mm. conflict with her own church. Then Um, then then I'm a dumb dumb who didn't pick up on this under query letter. I'm sorry. No, no, it's not in the query letter. It's you know, but um, then I would add that because it makes it seem like less of like she's in the center and there are islands around her. It's more like she went on one island and then the island led to another, and then that island led to another. Like it it feels more like the dominoes tipping over um effect that, that Bianca talks about. I still feel like it's quiet. And I don't think that's a bad thing. If that's your intention, you should just know that it's still reading as quiet, which I feel bad saying because it's like, well, you have a woman rushing to the doctor because her son's blood sugar is high. And that's it's true that that's a very life, meaningful, intense moment, but it's not story tense. It's life tense. There is a difference between life tension and story tension. And then just, you know, very quickly to to give you line notes. I really don't think we need any context when she's driving. Like, don't don't tell us that, you know, it started an hour ago, constant relent, like just just drive, drive, have her and, and we'll piece the pieces together because that's what readers do. We'll probably assume it's one of the kids and then, oh, actually, we'll know it's the son because he's thirsty, but we'll fill in the gaps for you and we'll adjust our expectations as we go along. I think it's better than than spelling it out. There's a lot of spelling out, like even things like the minivan, like you mentioned the minivan twice, like one in the sea of parked minivans and the other, like in how impressed you were that your minivan was 
was going faster than not you, the protagonist. <laughs> you guys are different people. And also things like, like we're taking up, like, so we, we arrive at the doctor and we have this dialogue with the nurse and, you know, take a seat. No, I'll stand and wait. Like, we don't, we don't need to spend time on that. It's just, I know that it sounds like, why am I economizing every word? And that's because it's the first five pages. And I kept thinking, like, if there was something else going on in her life, like a something she had to deliver to the PTA and one of the PTA moms was annoyingly texting her. Or again, a sister-in-law figure who's there. Maybe she rushed her son to the, to the pediatrician because her sister-in-law had the child for some reason. I don't know. But like, I kept thinking if there was some other plot point going on that was competing for her attention, obviously her heart is fully with her son, but something else that keeps like pulling at her in the real world. I thought that the pressure cooker situation might, might happen then because right now I'm, I'm feeling for her as a human, but I'm not curious as a reader. And it might just be my bias because again, when I, I, I'm drawn to stories that have relationships between women. I, I find men boring. So then when you add women, it becomes fun. So then I don't know, again, my bias, these are my notes. It's funny because I, I have uh, four sisters. So I'm surrounded by women. Um, Come on, four sisters. Women. Maybe, maybe make her have four sisters. Four sisters. This is good stuff. And uh, originally in this version, the, the mother-in-law actually was there. And we removed the mother-in-law because I felt the opposite. It's more telling for her level of isolation if she's alone. Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be as a support. See, isolation doesn't mean there aren't people around you. It could, again, be the PTA mom who wants more of her. Like, And again, like it, this this is one of the things when, when I brainstorm with people, like I have to be really careful because my, my energy and my enthusiasm tends to take up too much space. Like sometimes I will give a note that will make perfect sense to me and it makes no sense to the creator. And it is your world. This is your world. Yeah, I, I love this so. idea of possibly being on the phone with the PTA person and they're calling and, you know, which is, you know, exactly what does happen, you know, when you're multitasking. And I love that concept, replacing some of the dialogue with her focusing on the child, maybe being on the phone, having to kind of compress, internalize what's going on, not convey it to somebody else. But no, I think that's a great idea. Um, I just, I think it's funny that I did originally have the mother-in-law there and I removed See, now her. I want to read the version with the mother-in-law, unless she's like super nice. She can't be super nice. I really like the mother-in-law being there, especially if she's super critical, because that heightens the isolation, Julie. Because mm-hmm. the mother-in-law being there, if she is being critical of Callie's parenting style, if she's critical of the way Callie's handled it, that'll make her feel even more isolated. Her being there doesn't mean that she's less isolated. You know, if if she's doing the best she can and she's advocating for her child and she's still being criticized for it, that will make her feel that's even, very lonely. Yeah, that's yeah. lonelier than not yeah. having someone there. Okay, I have another spin on the opening here. So what if... I like that they're in the car. Okay. What if she's driving to the doctor's office and then she's on the phone with PTA? Like she, everything is the same, right? She's, she's dri- like she's driving, the kids are in the car. She's on the phone with PTA. But then one of the kids in the car says like, oh, like Ernie's not looking very good or says something like, you know, it's like Ernie takes a turn in the car and she's like about to pull into the doctor's office and makes a Yui to the emergency room or something like that where it's like I don't know something where it's more dramatic and like his health again I don't want to make this a book that it's not so if like this is a quiet book and you're like Carly you're turning this into like an action novel you know it doesn't but I'm just thinking like how do we suggest or even if they don't make the Yui to the emerge like the kid
kid in the car says like, hey, Ernie's not looking very good. And all of a sudden, like the stakes are upped because an unhealthy child is one thing. A critically ill child is another thing. So anyway, so I'm thinking that could be an option that one of the one of the kids in the car says, yeah, so and so Ernie isn't looking so good. Or, or even if the mother-in-law is in the car. Over. Oh, or, yeah. in the car, that's better. The mother-in-law in the car is like, Ernie's not looking so good or something. I don't know. Something where like something happens in the car where we're going like it seems serious and now it's like critical. And yeah, and the like mother-in-law that. can be criticizing her. I told you we should have gone to the emerge, but you said no, you want to see your pediatrician and now look at him or something like that. I don't know. And then what I was thinking how to bring the pediatrician back in is that the pediatrician is actually on call, right? Because at the hospital, because a lot of doctors have to do double duty. Like he's he's probably seeing a patient in the hospital, maybe like a, a client had a surgery. And so a lot of doctors doctors do rounds in the hospital before they go see their patients. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even, so maybe it just so happens that he's doing his rounds at the hospital or he's walking in to do his rounds and she didn't even know. And they have this like big scene at the hospital. And the pe- So it's not that the pediatrician doesn't have to be in it. It's more like maybe the pediatrician's doing rounds at the hospital. Yeah. It, it's interesting to hear your take on this because of that aspect of sensationalizing um, and dramatizing the illness of a child uh, does feel <laughs> a little bit. Um, and I kind of wanted to do the opposite because of how many people don't realize how this can present and how the symptoms are and how it can be subtle and that you don't go actually, and you're not hospitalized. A lot of people do not realize um, that, mm. but I get what you're saying. Um, I think these are really good points. I think definitely uh, introducing like the PTA or Um, I think that call the mother-in-law, I'm still unsure because the second scene of this, and even if I remove the pediatrician, it's fine. The whole second scene of this is when she's home, her mother calls her. So there's a mother um, dealing with that. Her husband's traveling and the pediatrician calls her and they have to have a conversation. So he could actually completely not be at all in here. He could do what you're talking about if she goes to the emergency room, because it's that phone conversation where there's an element of, which establishes a lot of this as well. And there's the element of, you know, him being like, you brought him in and I was okay. And I, I really, I should have known this because he also is a type one. And obviously a lot of people don't realize you can have early onset type one and have normal blood sugars in, in the beginning, which is exactly kind of what happened. Um, but no, I, I think this is a great idea. I want to tell you guys, something which I know you're not going to like, um, but there is a preface, um, which I did not send <laughs> because I know that um, you guys are not um, fans of prefaces and Bianca and I talked about it and I wanted you to be able to review these pages as opposed to um, the preface. It's just a page, but it's more- it's Very kind of- sneaky, Julie. I love it. <laughs> I love the sneakiness. She hit the prologue from us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just wanted your critique on this. You know, I, I know of my readers, they love the preface. I, I'm not sure you would. Um, but what I try to do a lot in this book is I try to really buttress like the comedic elements and these moments of, you know, emotional emotionality. So the preface is kind of lighthearted, comical, which is kind of Callie's voice. Then we come into this and that's kind of how I try to, to, to kind of, you know, carry the reader through when you're dealing with emotion because that's kind of how real life is. Um, so anyway, that's actually why the preface is in there to kind of anchor the book, kind of set the tone to address this kind of very emotional beginning to it and kind of do it. But anyway, so there's a little preface, but it's, it's only a page. And but no, I, I love these suggestions. And, and like I said, I think that it's, you know, for me, this process has been, you know, learning and kind of perfecting and figuring out 
how to do things and how to kind of make the best impression. And even with the second book, when I'm editing it, it's the same idea and reading a lot, you know, and I've been reading, I just did the such a fun age, you recommended it this weekend. And I started that one. And, you know, it's interesting when you're reading kind of other people's writing, and you're trying to kind of get a sense of it, uh, and a feel for kind of how these things begin. So no, I think these are great comments. Thank you. Did you have any questions of us specifically, Julie? No, I think that, I mean, just overall, like, so what would your thoughts be? Like, do you think that the, so I I shouldn't really query. So I already have the queries outstanding for the first book. I mean, do I kind of do these tweaks or do I kind of just, I mean, is it a better slate? Because I feel like if I can query the second book and re-go back to all those agents, it's still me as an author and I still have that book there. I just feel like maybe it would be a clean slate at having access to more people. Um, and again, I think from my readers of the second book, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, they enjoy it as well. So what do you think, like, in your opinion, is it better to sometimes just say, Hey, maybe I need to move on and see if the other one works better. I don't know that I would call it move on. I would frame it more as give your author career its best chance by picking your most shining child. And uh, I don't actually like the books as baby analogies at all, but let's just go with it. I, whatever, whichever story is the strongest. And by the strongest, I specifically mean the one that's going to get people to feel curiosity. Like, like, oh my God, I have to turn these pages because I absolutely have to find out what's going to happen. Like the curiosity is killing me. Whichever one has that vibe more, uh, go with that one. I, I am being totally honest here and blunt and telling you I wasn't curious when I finished reading these pages. Not because I didn't know what questions I was supposed to be asking. Will her child be okay? Like, especially after reading the query letter, what's up with this priest? is the priest hot like I'm curious about whether the priest is hot like all these questions but the pages themselves I reached the end and I wasn't like okay I have to like there's some books and these are the books that 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 really hook my attention where you get to the end of page five and you're like wait wait there's not more and then like you want to you want to shake your computer that's the vibe I think you should aim for if this is in keeping with your vision if your vision is not that like just I'm echoing Carly's words I don't want to make this into something it's not that's not fair to you but that would be my advice in terms of like strategy like pick whichever one is more curiosity inducing well my thoughts were just genre wise like because the second one could be more construed as like a rom-com kind of um feel which I think does seem to have a maybe a greater audience and maybe women's fiction per se is a little bit maybe of a tighter market, um, you know, because I'm reading all these rom-coms now and, you know, it's 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 a kind of, you know, it doesn't have kind of what you're talking about, but that's kind of the genre of what those books are and kind of the expectations. So, um, so that's kind of actually where my thoughts are, but I mean, it doesn't preclude you, right. From having multiple genres, if you feel like you can. Um, Yeah. I would say you kind of have to think about also like where you imagine your career going too, right? Like if you imagine doing, and you don't have to decide right this moment, a lot of agents that do women's fiction do rom-com, right? So it's not like these are two completely different worlds, but you might want to think about like what path you might want to go on. And if you think you're going to be committing to doing more rom-com in the future, maybe leading it with that to kind of establish your brand and, and find an agent that's perfect for that. Or you might, you know, it's, 
it's not, as I said, it's not possible to find an agent that does both, but you want to make sure you have the right fit for the right agent for the right project at the right time. And like, you do kind of want to double down and focus um, those energies, I think. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And I really appreciate all the feedback. And there's one thing in life I've learned that you just have to kind of absorb as much information as you can and kind of help yourself uh, with this process. And I think it was the outliers book with the 10,000 hours, you know, and I feel like maybe I'm in my 9,000 hour and I just need to just need to add a few and, and keep it going. But thank you so much. Before we go to today's guest, there's just a reminder that we have two upcoming courses. Mine is happening on the 20th of October from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, and it's called Making Your Writing Shine at a Line Level. If you're interested in signing up for that, go to my website, biancamaray.com, and look under the Courses tab. And then Cece has a course coming up on the 4th of November at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. That's called Writing Emotion, How to Weave Emotion into Your Story. Go to CC's Instagram page to find the link there to book for that course. For both courses, recordings will be made available 24 hours later in case you can't attend the training. And then before we go to today's guest, we just want to give a shout out to Writer's Bone, one of our podcast partners. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malkwee, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. 
This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest has been in publishing for 30 years. Before joining Henry Holt as president and publisher, she was executive vice president and publisher at Flatiron Books and headed an eponymous imprint, Amy Einhorn Books at Penguin. Some of her best-selling fiction titles include the number one New York Times bestseller, Big Little Lies, and bestsellers Nine Perfect Strangers by Leanne Moriarty, The Postmistress and the Guest Book by Sarah Blake, This Is How It Always Is by Laurie Frankel, and Free Food for Millionaires by National Book Award nominee Min Jin Lee. Her non-fiction bestsellers include the number one New York Times bestsellers Let's Pretend This Never Happened and Furiously Happy by Jenny Lawson, as well as bestsellers such as Amy Sedaris's I Like You and Isaac Mizrahi's memoir I Am. It's my pleasure to welcome Amy Einhorn. Amy, it's so wonderful to have you as a guest on the podcast. You and I met at Booktopia in Vermont back in 2019 uh, when I was the MC of that event. And I remember being introduced to you and it was like meeting a rock star. Like I was, I was flustered. I was tongue tied. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, people, I'm sitting next to Amy Einhorn. And you were just really, really lovely. And by the end of that weekend, I'd convinced you to be my new BFF, but I struggled suspect is because you were a bit afraid of me but but let's gloss over that so thank you for joining me on the show 
Thank you for having me. And you didn't intimidate me into scare me into being your, your BFF. But you were, I mean, you know, as everyone who listens to your podcast knows, it's hard because people take pity on you because you're such a wallflower and you really just sort of don't put yourself out there. It's true. It's true. I'm shy. I'm retiring. It's, it's, that's hard. People, the struggle is real. Okay. We're doing a lightning round. So I'm going to fire some things off at Amy and she's just got to reply quickly. And then we'll go into our actual questions. Which author would you prefer to work with? Amor Tolls or Donna Tart? Amor Tolls. Because I think because he writes more often. Donna Tart writes once a, every 10 years, right? And I don't think she allows herself to be edited. So I think that would be quite a struggle as well. There you go. But, like the Goldfinch should have been edited down like 100 pages. So maybe you <laughs> are the editor for her, Amy. Maybe she'll listen to you. Okay, now, Kazuo Ishiguro or Salman Rushdie? Kazuo Ishiguro. Okay. Okay, Britt Bennett or Yar Jesse? Britt Bennett. Margaret Atwood or Michael Landauchi? Oh, Gosh, do I really have to choose? See, I'm going with the awesome Canadian authors here. Um, um, Michael and Dache. Okay, right now I'm going to throw the South Africans at you. These should be ones that you should know. J.M. Kutsia or Kutsi, as the Americans yeah. like to call him, or Nadine Gordimer. Nadine Gordimer. Colson Whitehead or Marlon James. Oh, oh come on. Like. <laughs> Like if I could edit their copyright page on either one of them, I'd be good. How's that? It's like Sophie's choice. Okay. Jennifer Egan or Sarah Winman? Jennifer Egan then. Jeffrey Eugenides or Jonathan Franzen? I would say, um, I'd say, I'd say Jeffrey. Yeah. I'd go Jeffrey too. We, we don't like Jonathan since he dissed Oprah. And that- <laughs> but wait, can I tell you that I used to, when I was, my first job in publishing was at FSG and I was on the softball team and we were terrible. I remember actually we used to play in Central Park and my boyfriend at the time came and he said, oh, I knew you guys were in the field because someone hit a, hit, should have been like a ground double and it turned into a home run but there was like this really tall guy on the softball team who was like an fsg author and we were like who is he and it was jonathan franzen who was jonathan franzen then but none of us knew who he was oh wow and i'm just thinking like it seems like a really bad idea to have literary sports teams it's like taking all the nerdy kids who used to read and making them play sports oh no but the funny thing is that then you know who was like vicious the softball team was vicious was like oxford university press they were like really hardcore really into it um so anyway sorry I interrupted I love that you. I love that I love that okay Jonathan Safran Fua or Nicole Krauss Nicole Krauss yeah definitely all that, the way. that's kind of a no, that's a non-brainer I know right and here's our last one going again for the Canadian writers Emma Donahue or Miriam Taves okay Emma Donahue okay there we go we've done that right now let's dive into our interview something that I believe in you can correct me if I'm wrong is that the sign of a really great editor is you don't see any sign of them on the page it's like their fingerprints all over the page but their fingerprints are invisible so like a ghost in the machine and the books that you've edited are all so very different and besides the fact that they're really excellent excellent books you don't see sign of you in them which I found really interesting because I read in an interview that you gave that you willing to work sentence by sentence with your authors how is it that you able to work kind of on a line level in terms of edits and not leave any sign of yourself on the page? That's 
That's a good question. It's funny. I remember having this conversation with um, one of my authors, Sarah Blake, and I was saying that, you know, I think, and you know this, Bianca, as an author, that the author, I think, knows what the editor's doing, but that the reader shouldn't, right? And so if you really do your job well, the author should really be the only one who sees what you've done. And I should point out, I think a lot of editors do exactly what I do, which is, you know, our job is to help make your books better. Our job is to sort of, in a way, help you see the trees from the forest because you're too, you've been living with this for sometimes years and to really act as like an every person reader and sort of say, okay, well, I just, you know, this, I don't understand or, and I, and I should say also, I think that editors work with, I work with my authors differently. Like some authors really do want, you know, some of my authors, if I put in a comma, then we have to have a 20 minute conversation. Why did you put a comma in there? I don't think, you know. And then there's other authors who, you know, you send them the notes and then like they come back in a year with a revised manuscript. And so it, I think everybody's different in some of, of it of being an editor is figuring out what your author needs and they all need different things. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, let's talk about your last book that came out. I think it was your last book was We Begin at the End by Chris Whitaker. Now, I when I saw that book all over Bookstagram, there was so much buzz about it. Everybody was like, you've got to read this book. You've got to read this book. And uh, it was people who you wouldn't expect because, you know, some people, some Bookstagrammers get stuck in a certain genre, but it was one of those books that appealed to all different people across demographics. So definitely hitting that sweet spot. And when I started reading the book, I really struggled with like the first 10 pages because yep. his, his writing style is really like unusual on a sentence level. And I found it choppy and I'd have to keep stopping and starting again. But what I realized is that a really great author trains you how to read their work. So in the same way that Emma Donahue trained her readers how to read Room, and that happened with Bernadine Everisto with Girl, Woman, Other as well. She trained you within the first 10 pages how to read that book. I found the same with Chris. So, you know, you as the editor accessing the style that's so incredibly different, is it not tempting to access it and try and change it? Or is it that he just... Well, I did change it. <laughs> oh, well, tell us about that. Because you know what? I When I read those first 10 pages, I had chest pain. I was like, what the hell, man? What is happening here? And then I was like, and then I was like, okay, cool. I'm getting into this. I'm getting into it. But I was thinking if I was the editor on this, I... I would have like had struggles. So tell us about this. So, you know, Chris, so for people, so it's Chris Whitaker. He wrote this novel called We Begin at the End. It's actually his third novel. It was the second novel published in the U.S., but his first novel, his first novel published in the U.S. and Canada, I should say, was published so smallly. I mean, I think, you know, he might've sold 400 copies. So he has a very interesting cadence, I think. And so it's very staccato and halting. And I did have a bunch of people say that they found the first few pages sort of off-putting. And for whatever reason, I just sort of clicked in it immediately. But 
I clicked in it, but I knew that there were some parts that still were off-putting. And once you get into it, you kind of get in his rhythm. But the fact is, is that I really need to go back. And again, as an editor, you need to go back. And, you know, it's interesting sometimes when people talk about books and, you know, especially when we're talking about marketing books and they'll talk about stuff and I'll think that's great, but you've all read the book. I'm going to people who haven't read the book. So it's one thing to say, well, once you get into the book, you totally get Chris's cadence. There's a lot of people who would be like you, who would be like after the first couple of pages, who would be like, screw it. I don't, I can't get into this. I don't want to read this. So you what you you want to make the first few pages not off-putting. So if you can believe it, it was even more staccato than than it oh. was. So yeah. so I we massaged it a little bit. And and he was open to that. Chris was so open and it was interesting because when Chris's manuscript came in, you know, when we're reading on submissions, you're just sort of reading really quickly and you're in a rush because you want to beat everybody else. And so when I had a conversation with him, I had said that my one thing was that I actually there's a there's a mystery at the heart of the book and I figured the mystery out much sooner than I should have because it was I thought too obvious and I said and it doesn't matter because it was so great and I would have read the phone book if you wrote it and there was still another part that was a surprise but it would be really great if that so we worked on that but then when I read it again I came up with like a lot more edits and Chris was so excited and so happy and he had said like this is what I had hoped that I would have had before and so he was totally down for doing all the work. Is that his natural style? Because I haven't seen his other books. Like, is that his natural? No, it's interesting because he said it's not, it's funny. I've read two other of his books now and it's not his style, but I will say that I think that, I think with uh, most authors I've dealt with, I feel like authors hopefully keep getting better. And so I think that this is just a much more sophisticated book than what he's done before. So what will be interesting to see is what he does next. And I don't know if like, if he stays with that kind of cadence or not. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was one that, you know, just felt right for this particular story. Because, you know, you do know authors who change like the the narrative voice, even if it's not, you know, in first person or whatever, they'll change it according to the story. So I wasn't quite sure there. You've said in interviews that a common theme in the books that you fall in love with is that the characters are outsiders, that you're interested in character and you're interested in strong voice and you like to hook readers early. Now, in We Begin at the End, Duchess has got to be one of my favorite characters of all time and such an outsider, completely and utterly. But can we talk specifically about voice? Because, you know, when we go out on submission as writers, we'll get feedback and most of the times editors were like, oh, I didn't connect with the voice. I didn't love the voice as much as I would have liked to. And writers are like, what the hell are they talking about? So can you break (laughs) this down for us, demystify this whole voice thing? Oh gosh, I feel like it would be so interesting if you went, if you had like rejection letters and then if you had people parse them and sort of be like, well, this is what they're really saying. It's interesting because, you know, it must be frustrating because we in publishing say voice and I now I can see that you're like, what the hell does that mean? I would say, which is, you know, voice is the thing that I say that I can't teach someone. So I can teach somebody, you know, if the if there's a plot hole, I can fix the plot hole. Or if, you know, this character needs to be more fleshed out, I can give that instruction. But voice is kind of that thing where either you kind of have it or if you don't, and it's hard to teach. But what I would say is voice is that sort of... 
my French teacher said I spoke French with a New Jersey accent. So forgive me, especially talking to you guys, but like it's that je ne sais quoi, like quality that makes something kind of jump off the page. I probably sound incredibly pretentious right now and I don't mean to, but I think it's sort of that when you read something that sort of has electric and it doesn't mean to be electric in terms of like, it can still be a subdued character or a quiet story, but it's sort of something that makes you feel like, oh, it's commanding. Like I want to go wherever this, wherever this character or this narrator is taking me, I want to go with them. And it doesn't mean that they have to be likable, but they have to be magnetic somehow, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, voice can change whether the writer's writing in first person, because obviously, you know, there's a thing that's character voice and then there's narrative voice or the author's voice, where I think writers sometimes get stuck. So if you're writing a particular character in the first person, that voice has got to sound like that character would sound. But, you know, if you there's also something as the author voice. Because I think somebody broke apart when J.K. Rowling wrote his Robert Galbraith, her first Robert Galbraith book. There was somebody who had some software and they ran the software and they were able to identify that it was J.K. Rowling based on Mm. her sentence structure, you know, where she used her commas, where her clauses were, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's not something I think as an author, it's easy to change. You can change the character's voice, but, you know, there's something about your voice as an author, your your form that is difficult to to disguise. It's just inherent to who you are as a writer, I think. No, that's actually kind of fascinating that someone did that and that there was there. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I'm curious if you did that with other authors' works, if that would bear out or not. Hold true. Uh, look, for me, someone just analyzes my sentences and says, oh my God, there has never been an M dash that this author has been afraid to use. Um, <laughs> and these sentences are so damn long and then they'd be like oh it's it's her work you know but it's for me that's that's kind of interesting and it's a voice you know it when you read it that's the problem it's so difficult to define it but like I recently finished Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead oh was it great oh my word that book oh I was just head over heels in love with that that voice and it's the first of her books I've read but it was just so amazing so amazing and that voice just came through so strongly that's on my to read list that and Hamnet yeah I, I didn't enjoy Hamnet I'm gonna you didn't okay, I'm gonna good. be one no. of the weird weird people who fall into that mm, wasn't a big fan of Hamnet I could okay. I mean it was obviously well written my advice is go go for great circle first okay uh, so you've also said in interviews that in addition to like a book that hits those sweet spots you're looking for a book that you can describe in three minutes because a brief and compelling pitch to the firm's sales staff is a necessity and you said if you can't get them on board immediately the book won't work so can you talk a bit about that process after an editor acquires a book or even as they're trying to acquire a book because I'm sure you don't need to ask other people for permission to acquire a book but a lot of editors have got to get approval from the whole editorial committee so and then I'd also like to talk about how writers need to learn to talk about their own work I remember once when I was a young editor and someone had something about something for sales and I said well I'm not in sales so I don't need to worry about this and the woman who ran the company who didn't like me but her point was a good one which is she's like actually you are in sales we're all in sales 
which is true, which is I think people don't realize is that uh, for, for the writers who are listening to this, you know, you're pitching your book, whether it be to a literary agent or to your editor, the agent is then pitching it to an editor, the editor is then pitching it to their editor in chief. And then once you buy the book, then you're having to give it, you know, distinguish this book to your sales force. And that sales force is selling probably on average around 1200 books that year. So how are they going to distinguish that book from all the other books they're doing? And then that sales rep has to go into Indigo or Barnes and Noble or Amazon or their local independent bookstore and say, look, I know that, you know, I have 20 other books, 20 other publishers are coming to you, but, you know, I want you to buy this book and I want you to actually take a carton of 12 and do a face out and do all of that. So, you know, it's hard because in a way, some of your favorite or some of my favorite books defy categorization. They defy, you know, one of the sort of banes of an editor's existence is we're always asked for comps. Like, well, what's a comparison title? And in some levels, you want a comparison title because you want to be able to say, oh, well, it's like the corrections or it's like Behold the Dreamers. Again, you want to be able to do that, right? Because those books did incredibly well. So then people are going to say, oh, if you like this, you like this. But some of the books that are our favorite books, the reason you love them so much is because they're not like anything else. And so that becomes really frustrating too, because you're like, well, the reason why I think it's going to do well is because it's not like anything else. And I don't remember, it's funny when you're like, you said in an interview, I'm like, shit, what did I say? (laughs) Sorry, am I allowed to curse on here? The podcast is called The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. So Okay, yes. there we go. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember saying three minutes, but in terms of, I think the problem is, is that if you can't, you know, what a lot of young editors will do, will get up and be like, I love this book. You know, I was reading it on the subway and I missed my subway stop. And you know what? Like, it can't just be, I love the book. Like you need to be able to give people like, what is the book about? And it's horrible to say, but it needs a hook. And even if the book isn't hooky, you yourself need to figure out, well, then what's the hook? If if that doesn't sound like an oxymoron. So it doesn't need to be a high concept book, but then you need to be able to say, okay, this is this beautiful lyrical, blah, 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 blah. And it is in the tradition of like, you need something that somebody can wrap their head around as to how they're going to talk about the book. And that's why when, you know, you'll hear a lot of big, very successful authors say that they couldn't get an agent for their book. And it's interesting because I think a lot of times it's very hard for authors to talk about their books and pitch them properly. And I also think like it's very hard for, I think it's a hard skill to do because it's kind of the opposite of what the whole thing about a book is that it's taking hundreds of pages to unfold and you can't describe it in a paragraph, but yet we're asking you to do that, right? So it's kind of not fair. And this was something that I discussed with Stephen Rowley, who wrote Lillian the octopus and he couldn't get an agent he was about to self-publish the book he hired a freelance editor to just help him polish it up so that he could publish it she loved it she sent it to a Simon and Schuster editor who read it in one night and offered to buy the book before he even had representation and he said that the reason for that is he didn't know how to pitch his book so Lily and the octopus is about a dachshund who gets a brain tumor and the man is so traumatized by this because this is his closest relationship that he kind of likens this growth on the dachshund's head to it being an octopus. And instead of him pitching the book about grief and about love and about connection, he was sending it out to agents going, oh, it's about a dachshund with an octopus on its head. 
like, and agents were like, what the hell, man? This sounds like the biggest load of shit. So that's the thing. It's about understanding at the core what our books are about. And, and that's so difficult. And sometimes I think what's helpful is if you can have someone else sort of, and again, I, I kind of feel like everyone should have an editor in life because I think what an editor or this freelance editor is able to sort of be, you you as the artist are so close to the book. I think it's very hard to step back and be, well, no, this is what it's about. Because it's kind of like saying to you, analyzing your child where it's like, you know, everything about them, but somebody else could be like, well, no, this is what I see. Yeah. So when it came to We Begin at the End, what did you see as the hook of the book? Like, how did you pitch that to to the sales force? Oh, that's interesting. Because I was like, oh, I don't know if I pitched it, but I must have pitched it. You know, I think that it was to me, it was this Duchess. So for people who haven't read the book, it's about this 13 year old girl named Duchess, who is basically irresponsible for her brother. And then there's also this sheriff in this small town. And it's about the two of them. In some levels, I must have pitched it that there was this mystery at the core, but that it was a novel about family and the families we create. I do think that both of them have been dealt such horrible hands in life and yet they continue. And so I think that to me was the real thing is that these people have like, you know, there was this line we used that I think it was, you know, they've both been dealt so horrible hands. And so when, you know, someone comes back to town um, and brings trouble, they open it in arms wide shut. Like they just kind of know, like they're getting fucked in life. And that's yeah. sort of what they've come to believe. And right. it's kind of what happens. And yet that they still continue. And I think that to me was interesting that sort of this isn't like a Hallmark special. Yeah. I mean, the book should have been like relentlessly depressing, but it really wasn't. I mean, you know, it really, no, like really was actually like Duchess is very funny and yeah. a very sort of wry sense. And I think that's what I loved. And I love that. So in terms of I love that I hadn't seen a character like her before. I thought yeah. she was somebody who was unique and different. And I loved her grandfather and that relationship. Okay. So let's talk about you second guessing yourself, because something that I came across that I found fascinating was how, when you got the manuscript for the postmistress, Sarah Blake's book, you said you first turned the book down and you wrote Sarah a long rejection letter telling her she was a wonderful writer, but frankly, the storyline was a mess. But then a month later, you were still haunted by what a wonderful writer she was. And so you wrote to her agent and you sent, you know, uh, Sarah, like a 17 page letter of necessary changes. And that's how you ended up working with her and publishing that book. So, I mean, that's that's quite unusual in publishing, isn't it? I mean, generally, it's like a no or no, unless the author really rewrites and sends it back, and then you'll consider it. But for you to say no, and then come back to that and rethink about it, tell us about that. Yeah, it was interesting. I read the book, and it was one of those where I read the whole thing, even though the first 100 pages were a mess, and you wanted to like throw it across the room, because you're like the voice and nothing was happening. But for some reason, I kept reading and I read the whole thing, even though I knew I was to reject it. And so I rejected it. 
And then I remember I was sitting in a sales conference and the head of the company had asked me to sit in on the Riverhead sales conference. And I was in the Riverhead sales conference and someone gets up there and starts talking about a book and how it made them feel. And I was like, oh, I've had this. I've had this very visceral feeling. What was it? And then I'm like, Amy, it was that book you rejected. And so, and I kind of couldn't get out of my head. And I, then I found out, of course, that like her track wasn't good. So it was like even getting worse, but I called up the agent and I said, did you ever sell this? And she said, well, I'm, I'm going to maybe sell it for in the UK. And I said, well, you know, would she be open? And then I just sent that, you know, here's all the stuff that it needed to do. And that's one where I will say, Sarah, when I work with Sarah, I feel like, oh, I've earned my keep in that. You know, I feel like I actually really, Sarah and I click very well in terms of when we work together about with the editorial process. But basically in that, in that one, like we took the first hundred pages and I think we cut it down to 25, like just sort of like nothing happened in the first hundred pages. It was so incredibly frustrating. And so we kind of got rid of that. And and that's crazy because you think by the time that you as the editor see it, that like, you know, the writers worked on it and they've got beta readers and their agents had a look of it, you know, and you think by the time you, you submit, it should be really, really as polished as it can possibly be. But this is proof that it isn't. And sometimes well, I should point out Sarah, yeah. like, you know, Sarah is someone who sentence by sentence is just such a gorgeous writer. So in a way she's able to get away with it, but then you're like, okay, but back on planet earth, I need to sell this and I need, there needs to be a story and I need to sort of move this along. So, and I think it's actually, frankly, harder for really good writers, because I think that you are able to get away with a lot of stuff because it's not as glaring. Yeah. With someone who's not such a good writer, they've got nothing to hide behind when it comes to structure. Like there, there has to be an inciting incident. There has to be a why now, why today? There has to be a key event that thrusts them into the second act. You know, there has to be all these things. And like you say, if the writing's all glorious, glorious and amazing, you you tend to get distracted by that. And then you don't notice so much that nothing's happening. I feel like that's my love affair with uh, Amor Tolls is, you know, A Gentleman in Moscow, very little happens in that book. It's one of the few books I've read that is very little happens. And yet it's such a compelling book. So some writers are able to do that. You've edited Leanne Moriarty. So let's talk about her. Let's talk about a huge mass appeal. Did you, were you the editor who discovered her? Did you work on her from her first book? Or was it that she was kind of mid-list and then you discovered her and kind of catapulted her? So I didn't discover Leon. Leon had two books published in the States from, I believe when I took her on, she was being published by HarperCollins, but they, I mean, she was being published as like a trade paperback original selling like 7,000 copies. So I took her on with what Alice forgot was the first book I published with her. And then luckily I've been publishing her ever since. And, but the story I will tell about Leon, which is kind of funny is so, you know, Leon lives in Australia. I met her actually when I was, went to the Sydney Writers Festival, but it was very early on in our working relationship. And then, you know, we obviously don't talk on the phone a lot because the time difference is such. So, you know, there was maybe like a couple of times I would call her where I'd say, you know, to call her and tell her she'd hit the list or something like that. So years later, she's in the States and we're going to a party for BEA back when, A, there was BEA back when there were parties. Although she says that I tell it differently than what had happened, but I'm going to stick with my story because I think it's a good story. So we're in the elevator at the People Magazine party and she's had a couple of drinks and she said, we're, we're going down the elevator and she goes, it's so funny how you Americans pronounce my name. 
And I'm like, oh no. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, well, you all say Leanne, which I've been saying Leanne Moriarty. And I said, she goes, well, it's Leanne. Oh, I'm like, holy, sh-. exactly. <laughs> so the doors open and her agent's there and her publicist. And I said, so we've been mispronouncing Leanne's name for the past five years. <laughs> it's really polite that she didn't tell anyone. No, I think she kind of was like, what am I going to do? And they've been doing it this long. So, so now whenever people say Leanne, I'm like, it's Leanne. <laughs> Let's talk about like the appeal of her work. Like what is it about her work that you feel has tapped in to such a huge audience? You know, it's interesting because I think Leanne is actually, I don't think she gets as much credit for being a fantastic writer as she does, because I actually think her plots are so good or, you know, and her agent and I will say sometimes in some of her books, we're like, oh, there's the like, holy shit moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that just happened. Right. And, but I don't think that Leon gets as much credit in terms of, you know, she's such an astute observer of societal mores that I don't think people sort of really give her credit for that because, and she also makes it look so easy. And, and I can say this because I get so many writers who people compare to Leon and I'll be like, they're just not as good because, you know, what she's doing is I think she's doing, first of all, she's very funny. She has this, these mysteries is like her most recent book, which is called Apples Never Fall. I'd be very curious as a writer what you think of it, because to me, I think it's actually a masterclass in structuring a, a, a novel because every single detail, when you get to the end, you're like, oh my gosh, like all the stuff that you just had no idea was going on. But I think she's funny. I think they're great mysteries. And I do think one of the things is that I think, you know, and it's interesting, and we've talked about this, you know, every review of her will, or or article about her talks about the fact that she has kids and she's a mother and it's suburban, you know, and it's these women at the school gates. I think there's a, there's sort of this misogyny in publishing. Right. We never say men are writing male fiction. Yeah. We just don't, right? So yeah. Leon is writing women's fiction, which immediately sort of somehow it seems to be less worthy than yeah. something else. And that also that, you know, I think what she's doing is I think she's taking these sort of, at one point, I remember someone said about the women at the school gates, which I think are very, it's easy to sort of like write them off or sort of characterize them in a cliche sort of way. And what I love about in Big Little Lies, it's like one of the women who we find out who's always wearing, who's like, seems like the, you know, very put together, who's always wearing long sleeves, where we find out she'd been cutting herself, right? right. And I think that's the thing is, I think what Leon shows is these people who you make these assumptions about all have their stories that none of us know. You know, like to me, they do everything that a book is supposed to do. It's sort of a page turner. It's introspective. It's funny. It's shocking. There's a, there's a mystery. Social commentary besides it being entertaining. So yeah, hundred percent. Right. I mean, cause she's also talking about, you know, she's talking about very, you know, serious issues, whether it be domestic abuse. Right. Um, so yeah, I can't speak highly enough of her she is and and the other thing I will say aside from making it look so easy you know she's doing a book every other year and this new one I think is one of her best like she's just getting better Amy thank you so much for the chat I've kept you way past the time we agreed to always so wonderful chatting with you I remain a huge fan oh thank you so much this is really it's great to talk to you and catch up with you and that's it for today's episode if you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com 
and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase.
as new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.